story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem opens Advent and closes Lent. So we have the story twice a year if we follow the regular lectionary. And every year, if you're kind of following the standard Christmas pattern, that is the one the world sells you where, you know, the Valentine's decorations are already out, you know, they're ready for sale now, uh, that pattern, it's going to be kind of weird to be like, you're already at Christmas and wait, triumphal entry, den of thieves, what? And every year, every year (laughs) for Advent, Advent's a season of repentance. It's a season of awareness that indeed Jesus comes meek and lowly in the manger and we're going to viciously murder him. We'll wait till he's a man, but we're going to do it. And so we don't start with, oh, baby, so meek and mild. We start with, just see who this guy is. And who is he? Well, he's the son of David. I've spent time in the past talking about the donkey. Um, really, you know, 15 minutes on a donkey, I think, last year sometime, right? So we're, we're not going to do that today. Um, we're going to look more at um, what happens afterwards. You know, what kind of statement is Jesus making beyond I'm David's son, right? Everyone says he's a prophet. But I also want you to see that 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 part that happens next, where he goes after he enters the city, what he does with the command from the people, save us now, save us now. He goes to the temple and he drives out the money changers, gets himself killed, right? That part about the money changers isn't as focused on in, in Lent. That's coming later in the week. On Palm Sunday, we focus on the hosannas, the ups, the downs. You know, it's a great big day. But here, at this start of the whole thing, we see not just the guy coming meekly. He comes meekly for those who want him. If you don't want him, he comes with great wrath. And he does it even here in the text, right? So if, if you want to find your way in your pew Bible um, to Matthew chapter 21, it'll be around page 826. If you prefer the New King James, that's in the bulletin. And I'm going to be using the New King James as well. And again, we're going to go past the entry point itself and, and start with, uh, well, verse 9. We'll do a little bit on verse 9 uh, as kind of a segue between the part of the story you know, right, and then what, what happens next that I want to draw up. So verse 9 They're shouting, the multitudes who went before and follow are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is a direct reference to Psalm 118. I know I am always asking you to pray another Psalm. I'm always asking you to get into the Proverbs. Uh, Your life will not get worse by having Psalm 118 in it every day. Your life will not get worse. I promise. I, I do it every day. It's my favorite one. I do a bunch of them every day. Psalm 118 is the one that hits me every time. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. In the name of Jesus Christ, I cut them off. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Jesus Christ. We bless you from the house of Jesus Christ. For God is Jesus Christ. So bind the sacrifice up to the highest heavens. It says altar, but up to the heavens. It's just filled with hope. And this word, Hosanna, as an Aramaic Hebrew word, is a word of of hope. And it means save us, but it doesn't mean save us maybe. Right? This isn't save us, we hope you can. This is we know who you are, save us. And 
To try to apply this to any other man is, is almost impossible. But I could imagine Alexander the Great's troops on the battlefield as something's going wrong over here. His men say, save us. He says, I shall. And he leads forth and they all ride forth victorious. Now you, you could kind of maybe see a man having that kind of ability to answer such a cry. I would think that the election of, I think it's Javier Malay to the presidency of Argentina is what happens when people say, save us loud enough to a government. You get a different kind of government, maybe. We'll see. I don't know if you're watching, you should watch. Uh, this is, this word is your word. Not about government, not about elections, but about your God today. Save us isn't just save us sometime. It has in the word also the word now. This moment. right? And of course, they're asking for Jesus to do things back then that they probably didn't quite understand what he was going to do. No one understood the cross. But hey, here we are now. And we do understand the cross. And so to be able to know what that means for us, that we've inherited the promises where I can be in a dark corner in the middle of nowhere on the street and Jesus Christ save me, he hears me. Hosanna. That's the same thing. I say hallelujah. That's my word. But you can pick Hosanna. Grab one. Say it often. It's your word. It's your truth. All right. Hosanna, they're shouting, save us. Ah, I got two texts in front of me here. Um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Jesus. Again, that's going to be from Psalm 118. I, I entreat you to go look at that. Um, and then notice how the crowds and the city are not quite the same here, right? You kind of get this picture from Good Friday that like everybody turned on Jesus and like was there shouting at him. But it's not quite how it was. There were a lot of people who wanted him to be king. And that is what's going on here. They're like, you're going to be king. They want that. And people are asking, who is this? He's the prophet from Nazareth. That's who he is. But others are like, who is this? We don't know, right? And then his enemies are going to stir up the crowds, which will mean the ignorant and the evil, right? And what happens to the good people? Well, you know what happens to Peter and James and John, right? They, they get scared. They run away. Right? So, But there's, there's a lot of people who are for Jesus. And we're not supposed to hate them or think they're bad. We're supposed to be just like them. That we see him come and we call out with their cry, save us. Save us now. And what's he do? He goes into the temple and drives out those who buy and sell the temple, overturning the tables, money changers, seats, the doves, all this stuff. And he says this, this phrase, this phrase has got to summarize everything he was saying. Uh, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Den of thieves is from Jeremiah 7. House of prayer is from uh, Isaiah. Oh, make sure I get it right. Yeah, 56, Isaiah 56. So two different prophets, both dealing with times surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and the abandonment of God to his people because they've abandoned him. And Jesus is like, so if you know your Old Testament, I just told you what's about to happen, <laughs> right? Jerusalem's going to fall, and it does. 40 years later in 70 AD, all this comes to pass, right? But there's even more than going on spiritually for us Americans, I think, to sink our teeth into here than just Jesus is predicting the fall of Jerusalem. And there's a number of levels. One would be just look at the not nice Jesus for a moment. I mean, I know that most of the pictures of Jesus you will ever see, he's a very nice man, right? Or he's getting murdered, right? Like those are the pictures of Jesus we have. The nicest guy you ever met or we murdered him. 
Have you ever seen a picture of the cleansing of the temple? They're out there. You can find them, right? Um, one of my favorites is by Rembrandt. It's a woodcut. And the, the, the most scared thing in the temple is an ox. The ox's face, you can't miss it. The ox is terrified because Jesus got a whip. and He's right behind that ox. <laughs> yeah? And you can't see Jesus' face quite. It's kind of covered in hair. He's, he's angry. He's, he's, he's raging. Now, why would I think that's important? I think we have a sickness in America where we don't know how to deal with our anger. I think that because we don't know how to deal with our anger, we try not to be angry and we hide it. And then it comes out at times and places that it shouldn't. I think a lot of young men particularly struggle with this. So if it's not your cup of tea, great. Wait a moment. There's plenty of young men struggling with this. Rage. Fits of rage, right? And since they're always being told, don't be angry, they're trying, and that's part of why they're angry, actually. I'll, I'll give you the hint right now. You know why you're angry? Because you're, you're being told not to be angry, and it's right to be angry about what you're angry about. And so you're getting more angry. And you push it down, you push it down, you push it down. Finally, you say something, but everyone doesn't, they don't understand why you've held on so long, and you're over the top. Now, maybe this isn't you again, but my guess is you can apply it to your life here. But now Jesus here, he's doing something in anger, and it's righteous. Now, I'm not saying go try. I'm just saying understand that anger is righteous. And that a man can have anger and do righteousness with it. I don't think it means get a whip. That's not what I'm saying. But it means look at this guy. And then understand what's he angry about. And it's not right in our text particularly. I think it's all over, but there's something that happened earlier in the week. Um, I'm sorry. Something's going to happen later in the week. I'm sorry. It's later. But nonetheless, it's what this is all about. And I, I've shared this with you, St. Paul, before. Um, so I th hopefully this one's sunk in a little bit by now, which is that there's a moment in the, in the courts where, you know, they're not asking them questions anymore and, and everything's going on. And they, they, people are putting their offerings in this poor box, the, the mite box, the offering box for the temple. And the, there were a couple different boxes set up for receiving from the people. Um, but it wasn't like what we have, just one plate and it all goes the same place. And particularly, you're bringing offerings first and foremost to be sacrificed. They're going to burn it and then you're going to eat it. You're going to have a party at home with all the goods. You go home with the stuff or in, back to your tent in the city or whatever. Um, so you, you have that side of it. Um, I'm going to have to back up my thought here and catch it. All the sacrificial animals that are in the space for the sake of the sacrifices that are going to be made. And you have people then that are traveling and are purchasing these animals for the sake of making their offerings. In the midst of all of this transacting that's going forth, though, there is a primary place for offerings that's supposed to be above the tithes. The first thing you're supposed to give money to that's after you do what you have to do is the poor. It's the poor box. And you don't have to put anything in the poor box. You just put in what you want to put in the poor box. It's free will. And this woman puts in two pennies. And Jesus says she put in everything she has. And we come and we try to like turn it into a, a money-making scheme. Forgive me, but I'm, mites are mighty, LWML. I'm sorry. Mites are not mighty. That woman put in all she had to live on. And Jesus' point is, don't you see? That was the poor box. You've taught so falsely that the poor person thinks she has to put her last pennies into the plate and go starve because that's what God wants. And that's a lie. God wants the poor to be cared for by the powerful. 
And that's why Jesus is pissed off. Because he walks into that temple and what's he see? He doesn't see paper. Washington. There's a Lincoln. There's a Jackson. Nothing bigger today. I carry cash with me because, you know, it's good to have cash. I like to give it away, actually. I really do. Um, it's kind of fun. Uh, especially the more that I, I, I look at the pictures on these things and I realize, you know, we haven't changed so much. You know, what's an idol? An idol is worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's, that's the New Testament answer to idolatry, right? But Old Testament, what's an idol? Well, it's a small statue, right? You know, this small statue made of wood sometimes. It'd be your household idol, maybe. Although more likely made of silver and gold. Well, well why? I mean, if, if you have a lot of assets right now as an individual, do you keep it all in cash? Or do you put it into something else, like silver and gold, right? So they weren't stupid back then. They didn't have cash. They had silver and gold. And if you put it into a statue, then you can keep it safe, right? And so you have a lot of it. You're, you're amassing wealth. And you trade these things, indeed, for more wealth, and it becomes an industry. Idol making was an industry that caused some trouble for St. Paul, if I'm not mistaken, in Ephesus. Huh? So this is old hat. But what I want to draw your mind to here is can you see how Every idol of old was just kind of a piece of money. And every piece of money is just kind of an actual idol, right? And what is this piece of paper? And yet, how much do we give to this piece of paper in our hearts, right? I mean, it's a one. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No one cares about the ones anymore. At 20, there you go. Now we care, right? A little bit. Uh, the power of these faces over your countrymen is what I'm trying to get you to consider. If you want to repent of your own greed, go for it. That's good. Every day, right? I'm not trying to get you to feel like, oh my goodness, pastor thinks I'm an idolater. No, I want you to see that our country is built on idolatry. Like every country, generally. Uh, always. Uh, why? Because they build it on their fabrication of images to further their profit, to steal from you and take for themselves. Now, I'm not going to get into monetary policy and all the other things. I just want you to see how the dollars themselves are ancient idols, and we are free as Christians to use them, but not to worship them. Huh? And then again now here, Jesus is upset because he comes to church, and he finds all the people at church are more concerned with the money than with what? What's the place supposed to be? That's the Isaiah text, a house of prayer. That's where I'm going to have us look right now. We didn't get there in the first service, but let's, let's go there now. I want to go there. Isaiah chapter 56, house of prayer. We're not going to look at the whole chapter because the end of the chapter shifts towards something of a, of a condemnation. I can't give you the page number in the Pew Bible. You have to get there yourself today with that one. Um, Isaiah 56, we're going to pick up at verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. I'm going to explain verses 3 to 5, and then we'll read verses 6 through 8 and look at them. So verse 1 says, thus says the Lord. And, and you, I want you to hear this today as Jesus. This is Jesus. This is his word for you. There's nothing not Jesus about what's about to be said. Jesus says this. Jesus says, keep justice. Do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come. And my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold of it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. 
So justice, righteousness, accuracy is what that's about. Uh, and then he lists uh, righteousness there. That's a different word in the Hebrew. This is going to be more about um, measurement or having something be rightly stated, right? The long and short of this, though, is you know what both those words mean. Keep truth. Keep straight lines. Stay upright or do good, right? Jesus doesn't save us to do evil. He saves us to do good for his salvation's about to come. And that's going to bring about a world in which all we know is good. So start doing the good now. Blessed is the man who does this. Again, your faith is what hears God say, you are redeemed and you believe it. And it says, go this way and you go that way. Don't go that way. You, you don't go that way. That's faith, right? Blessed is the man who does this. This isn't about how you save yourself or what's the cause of salvation or some silly nonsense like that. This is about now that you're saved. What do you do? You walk the way God says to walk. That's what. And the son of man who does this, you lay hold of that wisdom. It will keep you really from defiling the Sabbath and from doing any evil. Now, the Sabbath is a little interesting there. If you get into Sabbath talk on the internet with anybody who's a modern Christian, you're going to run into cults. And I mean real ones, right? Uh, ones where they're not teaching like Trinitarian Christianity anymore. They're teaching a bunch of other weird stuff. Um, and uh, generally, that the way they get to it is they realize there's some sort of problem in the visible church. They're at a church where uh, it doesn't look like people are really believing what the Bible says. They think there's a problem. And then they discover or someone tells them, well, the problem is there's these rules in the Old Testament you don't keep. And if you keep the rules in the Old Testament, then the church will work again, like the Sabbath. See, you're not supposed to go to worship on Sunday. You're supposed to go to worship on Saturday. See, it's right there in the Bible. See, that's why you aren't growing as a church. Jehovah's Witness, not Jehovah's Witness, uh, Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists, whole church body, okay? Um, uh, so worship on Sunday, to them, mark of the beast, they say. We are performing the mark of the beast right now, okay? Uh, well, look, and look, it says it right here in the Bible. Whoever keep, doesn't defile the Sabbath, they'd point to this verse. So what do you do? <laughs> right. Well, I, I, it's a lot easier than you might think. Uh, first off, anybody who says we need more Old Testament laws to fix the church doesn't know who Jesus is. They have no idea who Jesus is. I really mean it. If they think Old Testament code, what do you want? Circumcision, head coverings? I don't care. What do you want? It's not going to fix the church. It's not. Yeah? Keeping the Sabbath, what it really means? What's the, what's the third commandment about? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What's it really about? What are you supposed to do on, on Sunday? Somebody tell me. What do you do on Sunday? Go to church. It's not that hard. I know it's a stupid question, but, but really, like, it's not that hard. You go to church, and then because you're going to church, what can't you do on Sunday? Work. Eh. So what is God, first off, trying to make you do? Rest. You fools. You know? <laughs> I got to get back to work. I got more to do. He's like, no. I give you the growth. So if you're not keeping the Sabbath, the problem isn't that you don't go to church per se or that you worship at the wrong time per se. It's that you think you're going to fix your life still and you think it just takes more time. If I just had one more day in my week, then I'd get further with what I want my life to be. That's idolatry. And that's why he's kind of mad about the Sabbath here. It's not that they needed Saturday. It's that they needed to trust that all of their efforts weren't going to be enough, especially when they're trying to stop God from tearing down their church because they're worshiping not God in it, which is what's happening in the text again. <laughs> right? Uh, so here he says, for you, 
Trust that God has you well in hand. That's what it means to keep the Sabbath. He has you well in hand. It doesn't mean don't do your job. It doesn't mean don't go to work, but it means when the work's done, rest and share. Don't believe that somehow you can get more, right? How does he say it? Can you make one hair gray or white by worrying about it? (laughs) There's a joke in that somewhere, I think. Uh, uh, So verses three to five, I... um, I said I'd skip over, and the reason is it's just going to take a lot of time to explain it. You have two categories of people who aren't allowed to go to church in the Old Testament. Eunuchs, and what's the other one there? Mm, I can't see it. There's two of them there, but eunuchs, I mean, kids, you know what that is, right? Like, it's bad. We don't want eunuchs back. Although, transgender movement actually is making eunuchs out of little boy. That's definition, right? Weird. Eunuchs um, were seen as incomplete and therefore unwhole. And everything about Old Testament ritual worship was about showing that we're whole. Everything had to look whole, complete. And so if you're a leper, you know, got skin disease going on the side of your face, sorry, can't come to church. And so if you're a eunuch, sorry, can't come to church. Now, that's here because Isaiah is saying, don't anymore let the eunuch say he can't come to church. Don't anymore let the leper say he can't come to church. It's all going to change now. You see this? So the the point here is no one doesn't belong to Jesus now. Whatever you thought you had to do to become a Christian, it is done in Jesus. Now, tomorrow, forever. Yeah, That's verses three to five. And then verse six, also the sons of the foreigner. Now here's the gospel of the nations, right? That's us. We're the foreigners. We're not Jews. Well, maybe you got a little in you. Yeah, but, but we're, the, we're the nations. We're the, we're the goyim, they call us. Yeah, uh, they, they got other words too for us. Uh, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to Jesus to serve him and to love the name of Jesus to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast to my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord Jesus, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So as soon as the nations get the promise that they also get to be saved by God, uh, he says, and then yet more, yet more. And that's us again, 2,000 years later. It's goyim of goyim. How weird can America get? You take anybody from the ancient world, you pop them down anywhere in America, they're going to think they're on a different planet, and they're going to think we're all insane. we will be like, it's safe. It's safe. Get in the car. They'll be like, no. <laughs> that thing's weird, right? We're so far away from what was, and yet this text says Jesus is going to come and get us. His word's never going to stop going through history, Right? And so all who join to him may know we will be brought to his holy mountain, which first and foremost is his own body and blood, right? He's the firstborn of the new earth. But of course, you got to know that's the day of resurrection. And all these old mountains from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, they're all pointing forward to the new creation, the new heavens and new earth that I talked about last week, right? 
Uh, if you read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, his second book in it is called Paralandra. Highly recommended sci-fi reading for adult Christians. Uh, Paralandra, the whole planet that this guy lands on, it's a space opera of sorts, the whole planet this guy lands on for a, a temptation, curse, fall, redemption story is filled with water, except for one giant mountain that comes out of the middle of it. I'll just leave you with that. But that's the way he kind of plays with this idea that God's always about the mountains. And going to God's mountain is a good thing. Uh, Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Can you imagine a city with great walls and layers upon layers of walls inside a mountain fortress looking over a valley that's filled with lushness and everything about is good fertile soil? That's what Jerusalem was. Nobody conquered Jerusalem, even when they conquered everything else. Generally speaking, it wasn't worth the loss of lives. Better to just let them starve. Huh? A, a powerful place, though. And again, a picture of the heaven that we are walking toward, which Christ here says, I am bringing you to. Yeah. I also want to emphasize in verse 7, when he talks about their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. Two things. First off. Let it be clear, we make no more sacrifices for atonement as Christians. It's done, paid for, over. Don't need to kill a cow, don't need to do, you know, to pay God back for what he gave you. None of that is there. Okay, so that's that's number one. Number two, Christians are supposed to sacrifice to God every day. We are. We're supposed to sacrifice to God, not so much money, but what we think of as money as Americans, time. And the way you sacrifice God with time is that you pray. It's very simple. Because anybody who's not a Christian is going to think or know, let's use their language, they're going to know you're wasting your time. Right? How's an atheist think about your prayers? Huh? What are you doing? You are absolutely, and he'd use other words with like an F on the front, wasting your time. Because you're calling out to someone who's not there. But I say, I am sacrificing my time to God enjoy. And I am rewarded with hope. Not by what I've done. I've simply acknowledged that my time isn't nearly as valuable as I think it is. And if I really want that thing, then praying for it's way better than trying to get it. Now, I only got my life experience and the Bible on my side, but I can tell you when I try to get it, I don't. And I get something else and it's worse. And oh goodness, save me. It happens over and over again. And I've found that if I stop trying to get, and I say, Jesus, help. <laughs> and then Jesus, show me. And then, oh, Jesus, I think I really want. I might not get what I really want, but what I get was what I really wanted. And I didn't even know it until it showed up. That's how prayer works with the living God. And Jesus wants his church to be a place where that's what we do, where that's who we are where we know that what we need will be met just enough, like sojourners in the wilderness walking through on our way. But he does tell us to cry out. And part of it, he doesn't, it's not like he doesn't know. He knows. You don't know. You don't know. You think you need to work harder. He says, sit still and ask. Watch the sunset for an afternoon. See if something doesn't change. Yeah house of prayer. And so for us as a church and as a congregation, right, to learn from Jesus' triumphal entry about the threat and the danger to our life, which is what? Well, that we would be most concerned with all the normal human things about managing a building and a parking lot and a community. 
And it's very easy to be concerned about money and mammon, even as a Christian congregation, in times where children are leaving and not coming to church, in times where many people are just opposed to church, in times where they're in fact hating us officially, and in some places setting up the path to persecution, it can be a little bit tough to sit on your hands. Someone might even say to me, Pastor Fisk, you can't really mean we're just supposed to sit there. I don't know what else be still and know that I am God is supposed to mean. I'm not saying sit there all day, right? I'm talking about how you fight your anxiety. I'm talking about how you deal with your fear. I'm talking about how the natural order of man is to try to solve our fear by amassing as many faces in a picture that we can. And even those numbers on your digital bank statement, right? How much safety really is there in that? And, and if, if you're concerned about American governance and the state of the economy, well, you know why, right? It's because your idol is getting knocked over. And I can't tell you that those dollars won't work or will work. I could talk to you about the plans for the central bank digital currency. That's fun conspiracy theory stuff. I don't know. I just know it's not any different from the way it's always been. That's the lie that we think we're in a different place. The wisdom of realizing that the dollar is an idol as a church is that we get freed to use it however we feel like rather than being compelled to think we have to serve it, which is what happens when you worship it. We can be free of it. It's just a piece of paper and it can do powerful things. And I'll, I'll give you one more little story here. I mean, I learned this lesson the very, the very, the very hard way. It was the day I was chased out of this building. Anybody there? My family? I know the Wackelses were there, I think. Wednesday morning Bible study, afternoon Bible study. There was a gentleman waiting as I arrived. I'll leave you his ethnicity off the table for the moment. But, um, you know, he, he wanted some help. wanted to talk to the pastor. I came in. Um, he didn't believe I was the pastor. Um, I kept talking with him. Uh, he wanted some money. I pointed to the care packets that we have. I talked about we got food. You know, we don't really give out money, though. I can help you with other stuff. I mean, he was dressed kind of nice. So he was like, I don't, need, I don't need food. I need money, my car, blah, blah, blah. I don't know how often you've you know, talked to people, but I've talked to a lot of people and, okay, your car, okay. I really would like to believe you, but at a certain point, you just can't believe them anymore because they all are lying to you. So, so anyway, I'm like, well, you know, I'm just holding my line. We're, we're not going to give out cash. Um, we're going we're gonna to give out this packet. The guy began, oh, first off, he, he stood into my face, like face to face. I sat down. He, right, there was a chair, it was right over there, right behind me. He was accusing me of insulting him. He was on the verge of the, the, the racism word, I think, right? Um, and he was certainly aggressively shouting at me so that I just went, I mean, physically, like physically, I backed up, I sat down. And he came at me at that point. So since I believed he was trying to instigate a conflict of some kind, and I did not want to be in a physical altercation as a pastor in my building, I walked into the office and I did some work with her to tell, well, that's what happened. He, Pastor Cypress was here. So I, uh, he knew that. He, he wanted to talk to that guy instead. So went to go get him, told Sue about it. He followed me into the office, started telling Sue how I was verbally abusing him. I left immediately, went to Pastor Cypress, who was meeting with somebody who's not a member but whose uh, mother was a member and had just died. And there was, 
issues with the funeral and other stuff going on outside the building that were a little bit difficult, but she just happened to be here at the same moment that then I'm back there and this guy comes back and he's shouting again about what I have done to hurt him by not giving him cash, mind you. Um, I walked out of the building. I told Pastor Cypress what was going on and I walked out of the building because again, I'm trying to avoid an altercation. I think that was a mistake now, but it's what I did. I walked out, I got my phone out. I turned the phone on. I turned on the camera. I walked back in and Pastor Cypress was already walking him out and out the front door. They walked right out. He talked for three minutes. The guy left in peace. Pastor Cypress came in. I said, what did you do? He said, I gave him 10 bucks. I changed the way I look at money forever. I'll tell you that. That guy wanted money so bad that he abused me to my face in my own place. And I'm ashamed of it now. I didn't want to give him money so bad. I let him do it to me. Hmm? I know now money's like magic to most people. If, if that guy was talking, I pulled out this 20 and just did this, he'd start looking at the 20. He'd keep talking. He'd be looking at the 20, right? I know that now, and I'm not going to live that way for me. And I'm certainly going to use that unrighteous wealth to make friends for the kingdom. That's how Jesus talks about it, right? We're free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. The issue that I want you to be faced with today is not, I'm bad, I haven't done enough, oh no, I worship money. No, 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 no. You come to St. Paul Lutheran Church because you're a Christian who wants to be different than the world around you, and we're going to grow in our ability to see money for what it is. It is a tool. It is a tool that most people treat like God, but all it is is the capacity to help somebody else. I worked over there, and somebody gave me a little symbol that I can use to make my work come over here and do something else. And I can do that. Who cares whose face is on it? If I care whose face is on it, now I'm in their story. Let's stay in Jesus' story. But again, this is very much about Jesus' story. This goes all the way down to when Jonathan Maccabeus you know, reconquers Jerusalem after Judah Mac Judas Maccabeus dies by voice, by making political alliances with Rome so that they make him the king, he gets to print his own money. And you know what he does? He doesn't put a face on it. But his grandson does. And shortly thereafter, Herod takes over. Yeah. You see how this goes every time? It's not about the money. And it's all about the money. It kind of depends on who you are, right? And you're not the people for whom it's all about the money. That's why these words stir in you. That's why you want to come to a house of prayer. That's why you don't want me to talk about money every week and tell you how you're supposed to give money every week because you know that's not what we're here for. You know, we're here because we're in deep need, all of us, that the survival in this life that used to be obvious is looking more obvious by the day. And we're not sure what we can do about it, but that's just it. God has known where you were going your whole life. He knew you were going to be here. He knows where you're going to go. And he has said, I am listening and I will send an answer. In fact, even before you ask, it's on the way. House of Prayer. St. Paul, I really have it as our goal, pro-grace, pro-Bible, pro-marriage, pro-family, pro-life, that as a people of prayer, those principles, those realities would be so emboldened in us because we ask for it. Not that we grab it. We ask for it. Jesus, give me wisdom, right? 
We ask for it, that it would be so emboldened in us that the world would benefit from our prayers. That we would be the type of disciples that take prayer and discipleship and push out from our walls. That we don't have to say, man, we need more members, but we just want more people out there praying in Jesus' name. That is the Christian church at work, right? That is the gospel. I want to give us some time on Romans 13, verses 8 through 14. Um, you can get there quickly in your bulletin if you want. Just to close the, the, the morning, we've got about nine minutes here for our normal time. And this section is just, just as good. I, I'd spent more time on it in the early service. Um, it is filled with encouragement. And the encouragement has to come on the other side of you knowing you're the Christian he's talking to and you're not the bad person he's warning about. And I, I really just think a lot of Christians don't know. They're not sure which one they are. They haven't had a pastor who said, no, you're a Christian. You really are. It's, it's not about you <laughs> now. It's about Christ saving you now, right? It's about you being saved. So now that you are being saved, now that the name of Jesus has marked you as one redeemed, now what? And it's, it's not law, gospel, law in some sense of now what? Well, get busy. I think that's wrong too. It's more now what, like, what's the blinders of I must prove myself are taken off of the human? Life's good, even with the thorns. He says, owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. And he lists all the commandments, not all of them. He gets bored and stops. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, he doesn't go into the ox and the donkey and the house and all that stuff, right? If there's any other commandment, they're all summed up in one thing, one saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So whatever rules you think you need to find to fix your life, you don't. Jesus is God, that fixes your life. And then from there, he's a God who is love and has a kind of love that the world can't know because they're too busy chasing idols. But his love is for real and for true, poured out upon the church in his name and seen amongst Christians who then seek to love the near one because it's what we can do. And the rest of this section, again, he's going to encourage us to love. It's not here for us to second use of the law ourselves. You know, the, the law says love, but I know I cannot love, so I need to be saved from my lack of love is it's true. That's not what he's talking about, though. Um, what he's talking about is how, at the end of the day, you can spend a bunch of time worrying about yourself, or you can see that other person. And you can learn to ask, I wonder what they're worried about. I wonder if I can help. And doing this even when that person doesn't deserve it, especially when that person doesn't deserve it, huh? So love does no harm to a neighbor. The word neighbor, near one, near one, right? Um, it, it, of course, your neighbor is by lot <laughs> in the, uh, the market economy of, of our land grab here in America, uh, our neighbors, treat them like neighbors. And if you really want to see how much you tenly, generally don't like love your neighbor, it's your neighbors, right? Like you don't know them or maybe you see them sometimes, but how much do we really have neighborhoods at all, right? Um, so there's, there's something there, but I don't think you should like beat yourself up over that. That's just, that's the sad state of the, the country we live in, the, the communities we live in. But then to see neighbor as near one, 
because we live in these like bubble homes that we drive out of in our supercars to other bubble workplaces, right? And we don't see the people walking on the street with us or anything. Your neighbor then is, it's who you actually see. That is the best way to take this, right? Love who you actually see, which I'll just say while you're flipping on your phone, you can't see anybody. While you're watching a movie, you can't see anybody, right? Doesn't mean, but love who you actually see. Love your neighbor. Do this, verse 11, knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. There's your reference to the end of the world, right? Love your neighbor, knowing that you're like, my neighbor needs help, but I want to do this thing, right? Yeah, but the world's going to burn. So the thing you think is so important, not as important as your neighbor who needs help. And again, I'm not trying to say this like, go be perfect, always drop everything, never fail. No, 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 no. What I want is for my own part and for us to be free to believe that love is possible, that love is good, and that Christians own the market on love. Not the pride movement. <laughs> pride is not love. And by definition, by definition, Love does no harm. And doing this in the time, verse 11, verse 12, the night's far spent, the day's at hand. Let us cast off works of darkness um, and let us put on the armor of light. Uh, beautiful poetry. I'd like to do more there, but I want to focus on verse 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Uh, there, along with the encouragement to look to Jesus as your answer for everything, right? That, that's very loud. <laughs> um, he lists seven different things that aren't love. Huh? And the translation is fine. Um, I don't know that my translation is better, but what I, what I think is fascinating, and I really want to do more looking on this, is the seven things that he lists, they line up awful nicely with the seven deadly sins from kind of medieval philosophy. And I've been pondering those a bit lately as, a, as just well, one more way to disciple, one more way to learn what we know. And the seven deadly sins are amazing, actually. Not like to do, but because they're sins that aren't really sins. They're more temptations. They're the seven temptations that happen every day. Like you don't get to look at the list of the seven deadly sins and say, well, today I'm not going to have that one around. It's not what it's for. It's there so you can know, oh, all seven of these things are going to be attacking me every day. And this list here, it gives us them, although it's uh, listed a bit differently. The first one, um, oh, I lost my, my English, um, that is translated as uh, revelry. Um, that word literally means just to overeat or to eat in a disorderly manner. I'm not talking about, are you a little bit overweight because America sold us a bill of goods with crappy food in the supermarkets? That's a fact. I'm talking about, um, going to parties just to eat. And that's what you live for, right? Living for it is different than being tempted by it, right? Gluttony is the word, excessive eating, gluttony. The next word, translated as drunkenness, methis, uh, it is really the word inebriation, right? To be so out of your mind that you're just lying there. Sloth is what that is, really. You know, the man who sleeps during the day because he's too lazy, right? He often is a drunk, wouldn't you know? Yeah. Uh, the next one, 
not in lewdness and lust. Uh, the only word in all of this, you have lewdness, lust, and lust twice. The only real sexual word is lewdness. And it's the word kotais, and it's, it's crass. Okay, so I'm going to give you the direct English. It means, hey, everybody, don't bed one another. That's what it wrote, right? Don't go to bed with each other, he says. Um, don't recline beside each other. Yeah. The next one, uh, which is lust, but it's not lust at all. Asalgeia, this is pride. And, and the word means to have disregard for other people's space. Like I walk in and whoever you are, whatever you think, whatever you do, don't matter, I'm doing what I want. It says, don't do that. Don't be that. Right? That's not love right there. Uh, the next one, eride, which is translated like strife, rivalry, but it's rooted in ambition to gain. So again, greed would be your seven daily temptations there. Ambition to gain, which is what creates rivalry, right? Rivalries come out of hunger for more, right? And then you have uh, second to last, uh, envy, it says. I'm going to save envy for the last one. Uh, this one's wrath. The word in Greek is zealos, and you can hear the word zeal or zealot right in it. It's the word zealot, and it means to be so passionate for something that you're going to do something about it. And Paul says that's it's generally not love. Right? Now, it doesn't mean don't be angry ever, but to act in wrath is not simply to be angry. They're very different things. Yeah? And don't act in wrath. And then finally, he sums it all up, making no provision for the flesh, to fulfill its, it says lust there. That word epithumis is the gold mine. And forgive me if I take three more minutes to give it to you. Uh, it's the gold mine here. And this word is like the word soul in Greek. Only the Greeks sort of believed you had two souls. Can you, can you imagine that? No, we don't really think that way. We think body and soul. But they kind of think body and good soul and bad soul. Good soul is psyche. We get psychology from study of the good soul. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, but bad soul, thumos. This word, epithumos, thumos. This is like uh, the, uh, the deep, uh, I'll just read it. Here it is. The vital force of the human spirit that pours forth in wrath and bottles up over itself. So, you know, you think of the soul as like this living happiness a little bit, maybe, right? Like that's the idea. You die and it turns into a little pretty ghost that flies away, right? And then, and this one's like the, the, the dark, dripping, disgusting, wicked thing inside of you. And so Paul says, so whatever else you do, don't feed that. Don't feed that. That evil hunger that wants what does it want? We're all fighting different battles, right? It's all the same battle too. So here he says again, don't, don't make provisions for the liar within you, for the dark soul of the human flesh. We call it the flesh or the carnal nature. Concupiscence, you can say that too if you wish. Um, make no provision for that. Knowing that Jesus is making provision for you. As a house of prayer, again, everything you ask for is provided. If you haven't got what you needed, you don't need it. Or... You're asking for terrible reasons and should rethink them. <laughs> or uh, ask some more. The persistent widow does get answered, right? All of this is about the journey. We're not going to arrive till we die. You don't want to set up a kingdom here where it's so good you forget God. So expect 
to always have the wicked come upon you, always have the trouble and the anxieties of the world, and now plan to disciple yourself, discipline yourself with stronger words than the words of the evil one. Yeah? In the name of Jesus. Amen.